I am really excited to share today. It's actually been, uh, Hugh told me about this a couple months ago, so I bought like literally 10 books on worship and started reading all of them and had way, way, way too much content to try to share. So this is a little bit of a faith journey here where I'm, I'm, I am really trusting and praying that God will bring across the things that he really wants us to hear this morning um, and help me overlook the, the other little details. Um, so first slide, um, Greg Beal, he's a theologian, Bible scholar, author. He wrote a book um, called What We Worship, We Become. And kind of the uh, thesis statement of the book is what a person reveres, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. And there's so much truth to that statement. Man was made for worship whether we're conscious and intentional about whom or what we worship, or, un or unconsciously, our lives are gonna be molded after what we value, what we admire, what we respect, what we cherish. Whether we intentionally choose to worship God or we live our lives admiring, emulating, or aspiring to be something other than God, it's gonna determine the quality and the course of our life and what we become. Say a little kid you know, worships an athlete, adores an athlete, they might wear their hat the same way the athlete wears their hat, or if he has like a little thing that he does before a game, the kid might do that before he plays his, his game. Or if they have a really rigorous practice schedule, he might copy his practice schedule in hopes of being like him. Or if you admire some businessman, some self-made millionaire or billionaire, you might read their books and follow all of their their outline for how to, how to get rich, how to save money. And maybe those are a little bit more shallow, but I think we can all relate to those things. And those things aren't bad. I think we all have people we admire, people we want to be like. Um, but the point is, is that worship isn't defined by 30 minutes on a Sunday, right? It's, it's actually a, a lifelong process of what we value in our lives. <clears throat> It's a life of desiring to know God and his ways. It's seeking to become like him. We, uh, my family and I watched a movie the other day. It's always really hard to find movies that are not cartoons that we can watch with the kids. And sometimes I think I push it a little bit. You know, they're not quite ready for the movie I'm trying to get them to watch. But just for the sake of preventing boredom for Gavin and I, we try to find movies that we can all watch. And we watched this movie, um, The Greatest Showman. Uh, we'd heard the soundtrack, my sister loved the music, and my girls were singing the songs, or uh, her girls and my daughter were singing the songs, and we thought we'd try it out. But it's uh, the life of life story based on the life story of P.T. Barnum, the guy who started Barnum and Bailey's Circus. And it really hooked me at the beginning, but then I found myself like so deeply unsatisfied with this movie. <clears throat> and I'm going to kind of spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. Uh, sorry, I'm going to totally ruin the plot for you and get, go over the synopsis of the movie. But So it starts out as this like really sweet underdog story where P.T. Barnum, he's, he's the son of a poor tailor. They work in a very wealthy home. He falls in love with the daughter of this really wealthy guy. And she falls in love with him, but the dad is like, you know, he's, he's more than rude to him. He completely disapproves. He doesn't consider him anywhere near worthy of his daughter. But they fall in love, they get married really young, um, and they live estranged from her father because he doesn't approve. But they have two daughters, and they're very poor, but they're really, really happy. Um, 
then he loses his job and is kind of forced. He's, he's just like such a charming dreamer guy. He has such ambition and um, he's just got this contagious excitement about life. And he buys this museum and turns it into what eventually evolves to become the circus, right? And they show him um, walking the streets and he notices these people on the streets that everybody else either stares at or rejects, kind of like the odd people of society, the disfigured, the weird. But he notices them, and he brings them in and essentially exploits their oddities, but for them, it, it gives them a family. These people who had to hide, they are all of a sudden part of a family, the circus. Um, and it just starts out so, so amazing, but then as he grows wealthy and starts to kind of socialize with the high society, they still don't accept him. The elite of society, they, they don't respect the way that he, who he is, the way that he's earned his money, they still don't accept him. And he's not happy with just the fact that he has a happy family, that he has a successful business, that he's done kind of this awesome thing. Um, he, he wants their approval, he wants their acceptance. So it, it kind of destroys his life a little bit. He becomes later, you know, long story short, estranged from his wife and kids temporarily. His circus, like I said, spoiler alert, his circus gets burned down. He loses a lot of money. <clears throat> and it all comes back in the end, but it doesn't, doesn't sati it didn't satisfy my heart. It was, it could have been such an awesome story of this guy who had these giftings, who had these talents and who used them but he, he wanted so deeply to be, he valued, he worshipped the approval of these, these people who were never going to accept him, who weren't even kind-hearted or good. Um, and it, it, it ruined him, really. It ruined what could have been. Just an awesome story. So what a man reveres, he becomes, either for ruin or for restoration. The potential is there in all of us. The gifting is there in all of us. But what comes of those things is determined by what we worship and what we revere. One more quick story just to highlight that point. <clears throat> so a uh, Bible story here. Uh, Jacob, uh, he's working for Laban. He's the father of uh, Rebecca and Leah, his wives. And he's, he's a little bit of a bad, tricky guy. He's like not my favorite Bible character. <clears throat> and uh, Jacob wants to leave because Jacob's been working for this guy for 14 years to... to um, to, to earn his wives. And he wants to leave and start his own family. And so he tells Laban, you know, I want to go. I want to build my own house and my own um, life for my family. But Laban's like, listen, ever since you came, I became rich because God's blessed you. He blessed me because you were working for me. So he, he tries to, con to persuade uh, Jacob to stay. So uh, I'm going to read the story from here. Here's Jacob speaking to Laban. The little that you had before I came has increased greatly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I do something for my own household? Laban responding, what shall I give you, he asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied, but if you do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages, and my honesty will testify for me in the future where whenever you check on the wages you have paid me. Any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban, let it be as you have said. That same day he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them, 
and all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. And then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to the, tend the rest of Laban's flocks. See, I said he was a bad guy, huh? <clears throat> Jacob, however, he took fresh-cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees, and he made white strips on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they... Oh, I had a different version of this. I was going to read a little less explicit. Anyways, they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted, and Jacob set apart the young of the flock. So anyways, what the animals looked at, they reproduced. So I'm just... Am I getting my point across that what we look at, we become? In 2 Corinthians 2, 18, it says, We all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Worship is an active process. It changes us. Not only, have we been, not only is it what we've been designed to do, it's what we will do, whether consciously or not. Even if you don't choose to worship anything, there's going to be something in your life that you look up to, that you admire, and it, it will change you. It transforms our hearts and our minds. It either brings us into God's full intention for our lives and his purposes for us, or it leads us onto a path that corrupts our true identity and distorts us and who he made us to be. Worship is a position of our hearts. It's a lifelong process of seeking and an active process that transforms us. I repeat myself a lot in this message, but because it's really important things to get across. So what can we learn from the Bible, from God's word about worship? What does it say? Um, in each of the gospels, there's a story about Jesus with a Samaritan woman at the well. I think it's in all of the gospels. I saw it in at least three. Um, and she's talking to him. She wants him to settle this dispute that they have between um, the Jews and the Samaritans. She's like asking him, where are we really supposed to worship? Are we supposed to be worshiping in Jerusalem or here on this mountain? And she wants him to settle this dispute, but he actually like comes out of left field and he says, um, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So not in Jerusalem or on that mountain, not in the Catholic Church or here at Restoration. It's not a physical place where we have to worship. It's, it's how we worship. But what exactly does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? So I'm just going to like break it down. And it's not exhaustive, but just to give a little insight into worshiping in spirit and truth. Um, so it's a little saying I think we've all probably said. Like when we can't be somewhere physically, we'll say, I'm there in spirit. And if we really mean it, what we mean is that, like, I can't be there, but my heart is there. My mind is there. I want to be there. And it's the same when we come and we worship God. You know, when we come on a Sunday morning, even though we're not physically present in front of Jesus enthroned in glory with all the angels, we're, our minds are there. We're not, our hearts are there. We're not thinking about lunch or our to-do list or everything else that can distract us. I mean, we might be when we first come. I think it, it takes a conscious effort for all of us to put aside the distractions and to come and say, I am worshiping you in spirit. I am here. I am looking at Jesus right now and being engaged and present when we come to worship. Um, there, when we come in and we just sing the songs, but our hearts and our minds are somewhere else, 
That's exactly like what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. He says, they honor me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. That doesn't move the heart of God. It doesn't move him that you came to church and you sang all the songs if your heart is thinking about, you know, a million other things. That's not, that's not the worship that moves his heart. And also, worshiping the Spirit, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to worship God. We love God because he first loved us. It's his Holy Spirit inside of us that reveals Christ to us and stirs affection in our hearts for him. In Romans 8.15, it says that we've received a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit inside of our hearts cries out for God. We need God to love him. And the Holy Spirit is a gift that he promised to everybody uh, who believes in him. And if you've never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit or you're not sure if you have, that's something that we would love to pray for you to receive after church today. So when we worship in spirit, we're present, we're engaged, and we worship with the help of his Holy Spirit. Worshiping in truth. Um, I know we all probably come from different church backgrounds, or some of us didn't grow up going to church. Um, but a lot of like popular church culture today, they get the worshiping in spirit part. Like They come, and they're exuberant, and they're singing, and they're maybe even very expressive. Um, but Jesus didn't say we only need to worship in spirit. He said we also need to worship in truth. Um, and I, I know I was brought up in a church that really got the truth part, but didn't really get the, the spirit part, the heart connection to it. Um, and they were really good at singing like these beautiful hymns that have such amazing, amazing truths in them. But the worship was really dry and there was no emotions attached to it and it was really, really dull. Um, and I think it, it almost felt like people were fearful of emotional expression. Um, my mom was raised thinking that dancing was horrible, was dancing was evil. But when um, King David, a man who God called a man after his own heart, when he danced with all of his might before the Lord, God delighted in that. God delights when we enjoy him and when our emotions are engaged in our worship. He made our emotions. So dull, dry singing worship songs, but having like a really solid biblical understanding of who God is, is also not enough. We need to be heart connected in our worship, but we also need to know who God is and who he says we are, um, and that we're totally loved, forgiven, and accepted in his sight. And ultimately, that requires us to read and study his word regularly, daily, if you can, um, so you can get truth into your heart and your mind about who God says he is. Otherwise, it, you can easily become polluted with the worldly ideas of who God is. I've met people who I've tried to share Jesus with myself and who have said that they wouldn't believe in a God who would send people to hell. And that, what the Bible says is that he doesn't desire anyone to be perished, to anyone to perish, but all to come to salvation. And he made a way for that. So... We can't, you know, we can't allow our life experiences, we can't allow popular culture to influence how we perceive God. We actually have to sometimes actively fight what we believe about God, what we were told growing up in church that might not be right, or our cultural understanding of him. We have to read his word and look at what the word says that he is. And the word tells us that he loves us, and the word tells us that he considers us sons and daughters. The word tells us that we're fully accepted in his sight. And 
I think it's really impossible to come and worship a God who you think is mad at you or who you think doesn't really like you or who is holding all your sin over your head. So it's important to understand um, just how he sees you and who he is. And I'm going um, to kind of just briefly go over this because I don't think I have enough time, but um, this was one of the books I spent way too much time reading in preparation. Um, and it's really, really good. In the Old Testament, you couldn't approach God. You, you could not go into the, the presence of God was symbolized in the Holy of Holies by the Ark of the Covenant. And you could not approach God or you would die. Uh, there's a story of one man who touched the ark and he was just instantly, you just because God is holy and nothing that's unholy could be in his presence. So it was a, quite a process to even enter into God's presence. And just to share that like God opened up that way now that actually he gives us all full access when we accept Jesus Christ as our savior, we repent of our sins and come to him. We have access to God. And don't take that lightly, that we have access to God now uh, through Jesus Christ. Um, and yeah, that's just a summary. Don't, don't take that lightly. We're all forgiven based on Jesus' sacrifice, not because we're really good Christians. So, you know, you've got to put aside shame. You've got to put aside any, any condemnation or guilt and just know that God, God actually delights in you and he, he has completely forgiven you. Um, Hebrews 4.16 said, um, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet he didn't sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Um, and not only are we at granted access into the presence of God, but it's also important to know, again, how much he loves us. He compares himself um, in the Bible, the God of all creation, the great and awesome God, he compares himself, he calls himself our father, not, not just compares himself, he says he is our father. And just a couple of verses, First um, John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And Matthew 23, 9 says, Do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father, and he's in heaven. Psalm 103, 13, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And not only does God have perfect, selfless, fatherly love for us, but he also calls the church his bride. It's, it's like the ultimate romance story, a love that's so deep and pure that he died for us. Um, in John 3, 29, um, on the next slide, uh, John the Baptist refers to uh, Jesus as the bridegroom. In Matthew 9, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. In Revelation 19, 7, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. So the end of the age is considered the marriage of Christ to his church. Um, and I'm just going to... I'm just going to skip over the last verse, just for time. So the last thing I want to talk about um, is just that God responds to our worship. So not only does he love us, not only does he fully accept us, but when we worship, God responds. We don't worship... A, idol made of wood or a person that will never fully accept us. We worship a, a living God 
who responds to our worship. Um, there's a story in First Chronicles, actually I think it's Second Chronicles 20, um, about the army who goes to war, uh, and they, they lead the war with the worshipers, and I'm going to read the story really quickly. Um, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King, and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. And they rose very early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. And they went before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against them, or against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah. Long story short, they didn't do anything. They went to war, and they didn't have to fight. That takes a lot of faith. They worshiped while their enemies literally killed each other. God asks us to look to him. I think we all come to God, and, and this isn't just on a Sunday. This is in our life with our own battles, and it's really easy to be consumed by our own battles. But God asks us to seek first the kingdom. He asks us to surrender those battles and to worship him and to trust him and to allow him to fight for us. Psalm 22.3 says that God inhabits the praise of his people. In the Old Testament, God dwells in the Ark of the Covenant, but now God dwells with us and inside of us, and he inhabits, he literally dwells in our worship and our praise. In Acts 16, there's a story about Paul and Silas who were in prison, um, and they just started singing worship songs, and um, an angel came and opened up the gates and freed them from the prison. God's able to intervene in our lives and in our circumstances if we just look to him first. Um, sorry, I said it was my last thing, but I actually have one thing. Um, with worship, don't be afraid to be extravagant with your worship. Don't feel like you have to, like worship is a, just giving the bare minimum, you know, be, be extravagant. God, God notices that. God sees that. God responds to that. Um, there's the story of Mary of Bethany um, in the Bible, which is so awesome. And Mary was the sister of Lazarus, the guy who was raised from the dead. And her, Martha was her other sister, the one who was always busy and working and complaining about Mary. Um, and Mary was the one who took that really expensive bottle of perfume, and it was worth like a year's wages, so tens of thousands of dollars, and she poured it out on Jesus, and everybody was like, what did you do? You poured, you know, you could have given that to the poor, and Jesus actually stopped them from giving her a hard time, and he, he commended her for what she did, and he said it was a good thing. And I think, like, you hear stories about people um, you know, there's this man, Charles Studd. He was a famous cricketer in England, and he came from a very wealthy family. He had everything. Um, and he was a Christian, but he wasn't really, like, following after Jesus. And he, um, his brother got sick. His brother was near death, and I don't know if his brother died, but he just saw, like, in a moment, everything was gone. His brother's life was nothing on earth. And so he, he actually gave away his entire inheritance to charities. He didn't keep a penny 
uh, quit cricket and became a full-time missionary. And he, he said, uh, and it's kind of a popular saying, like, only one life it's soon, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And he just had a revelation of, like, <clears throat> it's not wasted effort when we give it to God. It's not wasted effort when we use our talents and our gifts and our skills for his kingdom. It is, it is, he is worthy of it. You know, some of us have talents in the world, and, you know, sometimes we grudgingly come to church and we do, you know, you know, the worship team, they do it week after week after week, using their talents to worship God. It's not wasted. It's not a sacrifice. It's the best use of your talents. When we come and we do set up and you, you give your time, it's, it's not a waste of your time. It is an act of worship that God sees, that God responds to, and that will be highly rewarded in heaven. He sees those things. And then just to cover like what forms of worship, like the practicalities of it. Um, I think I dropped the paper that had it on there. Oh, I don't know where it is. <laughs> uh, there's a verse on orderly worship. Oh, here. Uh, when we come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All things done for building up. So when we come together, we're supposed to be built up, right? Our spirit man is built up. We're built up when we come together. But it's a very participatory thing. You know, it's not us coming and having the worship lead, band lead worship and us. You know, it should be a very participatory thing. And I'm guilty of, you know, restraining myself too because I'm worried about what people think. But it's like we all should come together contribute and allow the Holy Spirit what he wants to do to build each other up, to honor and glorify God. And here's nine things that we see in the Bible, um, which are forms of worship that were in the Bible that are uh, ways of honoring God, uh, speaking, shouting, singing, bowing, <clears throat> standing, dancing, playing instruments, clapping, clapping hands, lifting hands. They're folded, so they're not staying up there. <clears throat> uh, and those are awesome. Like, we shouldn't get in a rut or feel confined. We should express ourselves to God. We should bow in his holiness. We can stand in victory that he's given us. We can shout in the battle, sing because our heart overflows with gratitude and love. Don't be afraid to express yourself to God. He, he sees that and he loves that and he responds to that. So in summary, worship is a lifestyle. It's an active process that transforms us. God isn't mad at us. He's totally accepted us. He's our father. He's our bridegroom. And he's worthy of extravagant worship. And he will always respond to our worship.